Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Timothy Neeland, author of Playing Politics with Natural Disaster. Timothy Neeland, author of Playing Politics with Natural Disaster, Hurricane Agnes, the 1972 election, and the origins of FEMA. Um, first of all, a little background for people who might be uh, a little rusty on it. Hurricane Agnes, uh, where was it? How big was it? Uh, Hurricane Agnes struck the United States in June of 1972, and then it came up the eastern seaboard, causing uh, all sorts of destruction uh, from Florida all the way up to New York and Pennsylvania before finally drifting out to sea. It was uh, killed 122 people, caused billions of dollars in damage, displaced uh, you know tens of thousands of people who were homeless the entire summer of 1972 and beyond, some of them. Now, you quote a couple of politicians as saying it's the biggest natural disaster in the history of the country. Was that overstatement? Was that pretty accurate at the time? I, I think at the time, um, considering the amount of damage that was done, it was uh, we passed the most generous disaster relief bill to that time because of Hurricane Agnes. Certainly in terms of property damage and destruction, it really was pretty devastating. And if you think about the people affected all the way from Florida up to New York and Pennsylvania, that really was a pretty massive swath of destruction. So. Uh, maybe a tinge of hyperbole because it was an election year, but also I really do think at the time it was quite overwhelming for uh, the federal government and for the state governments and local governments affected by it. So it really was uh, maybe the greatest natural disaster to that time. Why write the book now? Well, you know, the, the book really is um, not just about the past, it really is also about the present. So one of the things that I allude to is the fact that we have a tendency to really feel that, you know, we're safe in our structural barriers to floods, things, you know, like dikes and levees, and that we think that we're, we're going to be um, completely, you know, fooled nature, mother nature. But that's not always the case. And in fact, uh, with climate change, I really think that flood dangers are going to be growing in the future. Uh, massive development that continues to go unabated, um, changes where water flows, the hydrological table as the scientists call it, and that's going to send water in areas that hasn't gone before. So this book is not just about the past, but I really see it as a warning to people in the present to think about what floods have occurred in their area so that they're more aware of it. One of the interesting things I find is that a lot of people, when they purchase a home, have no idea that they're actually purchasing a home that may be in a flood area. If they're not required to purchase flood insurance, they may be completely oblivious to the danger they're in. I mean, water is showing up, you know, uh, you know, half a mile away from where uh, people are rated in flood zones. So this book is to raise awareness and to strongly suggest that local governments and others take seriously where they allow development and building. So yeah, this is a book not just about the past, but it's about the present and hopefully about the future. Has the definition of a flood zone changed since Hurricane Agnes? 
Yeah, in fact, it has. Um, what, what happened is FEMA has changed the ratings. Uh, there has been some legislation uh, against um, against some of FEMA's changes, changes by Congress. Uh, and so a floodplain uh, generally remains uh, where traditional floods have occurred um, or um, have occurred in the last 100 years. Um, but certainly, you know, with there's been a pushback from environmentalists who'd like to see more areas rated. Um, and in fact, in fact, a recent study came out by a private agency, a third, um, a third party group, that suggests that the flood danger for Americans is actually much higher than what your flood maps would reveal. And so they're suggesting that um, over the next several years, that larger populations you know, um, will be endangered by flooding. So yeah, no, I, I really think that when we think about floods, we think about, well, you know, it just occurs near a river or, you know, there's, there's been flash floods in this area before. But what we're looking at, again, is not just what has happened, but the potential for what will happen in the future due to developmental um, structures, the built environment, as we call it, that changes where water flows and creates hazards that didn't exist before. Now, going back to 1972 along the Susquehanna, where you, you concentrate in your book, uh, what kind of flood control systems did they have in place at the time? Okay, and I'm going to get a little historical here, so bear with me. Um, really, what happened was the federal government was not involved in, in much flood control outside of the Mississippi River uh, until after the great floods of 1927. And then there were some devastating floods along the Susquehanna River in the 1930s, particularly 1936, although there were also some floods in the 1940s. This is going to lead to the first Federal Flood Control Act that's going to allow the federal government to come in and build flood structures like dikes, dams, and levees. And these will be built by the Army Corps of Engineers. And But supposedly, the local or state governments are supposed to maintain them once they're built. So there were flood control mechanisms in um, the areas that flooded, uh, dikes, levees, um, a few dams here and there. But what made it even more dangerous was that because these were built, people began to uh, lower their guard, so to speak, and they began to really feel that, ah, we're going to be safe. Technology will save us from the nat from natural environment and that we're going to be uh, completely safe. Um, meanwhile, there's a guy named um, Gilbert White who, uh, in the 1940s, is writing about the dangers of um, just uh, unfettered development. And he thinks the wisest course uh, is not to build dikes and levees, which are ultimately going to fail. Nature will overwhelm them at some point. But in fact, you have what he calls human adjustment to flooding. And so he wants people to think about moving off of the floodplain or raising your structures up or doing things that will at least mitigate uh, what might happen. So yes, people uh, in 1972 had been fairly dry since the 1940s, and, and I think that, that sense of security is really what led in part to tragedy. And um, you see that in the book when I talk about how many of the local government officials were like, nah, our dikes and levees are going to hold. It's going to be fine. We don't need to evacuate. We can, we can take our time. Or worst case scenario, uh, as in Wilkes-Barre, where Frank Townen ordered the um, local people to assist in sandbagging. We'll just raise the levees up a few feet, and that will protect us from the ultimate, um, you know, the flood. And, and again, so it was in some ways our structural barriers that protected us, but then also made us much more vulnerable when Hurricane Agnes struck.
Has the thinking changed at all in the almost 50 years since Hurricane Agnes about uh, the dikes are there so we're safe or we shouldn't build at all in the floodplain? Has, has the thinking changed at all in that? You know, up until Tropical Storm Lee, right, till up to about 2011, really the thinking hadn't changed. In fact, most of your local governments were still clamoring for higher levees, you know, or, or you know, stronger dikes, higher levees, uh, longer um, infrastructure to protect against flooding. That really changed w w in 2011 and after when we began to see floods occurring in areas um, that were not protected by the dikes and the levees. As the water was being uh, controlled through these structures and then channeled into areas that had not flooded before. At that point in time, um, the overwhelming evidence that we were not gonna protect people in the long haul by simply building larger barriers to floods really struck home. And there is a, there's a program through FEMA that will, um, you know, remove structures from the floodplain. Uh, FEMA will sponsor 75% of the cost of property that's removed, um, but then local and state governments have to chip in the other 25%. And they can do that through um, their own tax policy, or they can use private funds, philanthropic funds, if they can locate them. Um, and we've seen more of that, particularly in Pennsylvania, less so in New York, but definitely in Pennsylvania, people have taken that more seriously. And we're starting to see more structures being removed from along the floodplain because what's happened since then is repetitive flooding. 1972 was Hurricane Agnes, 1975, Eloise, and on and on. There was tremendous flooding in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania in the 1990s, and again in the 2000s. So these repetitive floods, I think have finally persuaded both local officials, state officials, and federal officials that we need to do something to protect the people, the property, um, and, and their memories. I mean, your house is destroyed. Um, you, you know, you're gonna lose some of those precious things that you've clung to for years that have meaning to you. Um, you know, the, the kind of things that we collect from our children as they grow up, or uh, other memorabilia, maybe things handed down from our families to us, heirlooms. And they, of course, could be destroyed in a flood. Um, fortunately, we're better at getting people out of uh, danger. Uh, and the number of people who die from floods continues to fall, although the property damage from flooding in the United States continues to rise because of the development in the floodplain. I want to read something in your book here. You say a general accounting office study in 2003 found that repetitive claims on flood damaged property accounted for the largest share of flood insurance claims. So the, the largest share of flood insurance claims was people whose houses were destroyed. And they rebuilt and they were destroyed again. Yes, and um, uh, FEMA tried to overcome that by getting legislation written that said you could only receive a claim on your home if it was flooded twice. So you could only, if you, if you had two floods after that, FEMA said they, they wouldn't help in, in repaying you. But the loophole there is then you simply sell the property to someone else and they can also have that property restored. And we've seen that time and again where it passes from one property owner to the other, but then the federal government will come in and assist in rebuilding um, 
through the National Flood Insurance Program these properties. And so, yes, it's it's um, it's striking. Um, the actual cost we use the National Flood Insurance Program, although many people are unhappy with paying the flood insurance, um, the National Flood Insurance Program actually it really does subvent a lot of the actual cost. In 2012, there was a something called the Biggert's Waters Bill uh, that was a, an attempt to actually make individuals who live in uh, high-risk floodplains to pay what would be a much more natural amount of um, the flood insurance. But some people saw their flood insurance rates go from maybe $1,000 a year to $10,000 a year. And of course, people just can't afford that. Um, so um, Congress uh, removed, uh, uh, amended that legislation to uh, remove those people from having to pay the full freight. So, um, you know, after um, Katrina and, you know, after Tropical Storm uh, Lee and some um, Hurricane Sandy, um, the National Flood Insurance Program was, what, about $25 billion in the red. Uh, we had paid out in excess of what uh, was being collected. So um, it's the National Flood Insurance Program um, was created uh, along the lines of Gilbert White's idea, human adjustment. Make people pay the cost. If people actually have to pay a little more to live in these high-risk areas, maybe they'll choose not to. Um, but of course, that would only be if you were paying perhaps close to the actual cost of the flood insurance and what it covers. There was a, a, a lawyer named Allison Dunham back in the 1960s who studied this and said, yes, this will work. This will make people um, stop building in high-risk areas, but only if they're actually paying uh, enough cost that it's, it's somewhat painful for people to build there financially. If you don't, you will only be encouraging people to live there because they will know that should their property be destroyed, that they will, through the National Flood Insurance Program and some other generous disaster benefits, be able to rebuild. And that sadly has been the case, that it's encouraged people, rather than getting them off the floodplain, it's actually encouraged people to build closer to the floodplain or to build more expensive houses uh, along the rivers or uh, areas in the United States that flood. How does the whole flood insurance program work? I mean, who? how do you know if you have to have it? And do you have an option to buy it or not? And, and who do you buy it from? Ah, great. So uh, the National Flood Insurance Program is, um, uh, this is uh, one of the outcomes of Hurricane Agnes. And so Richard Nixon was um, obsessed with getting the federal government uh, more out of this natural disaster cycle of uh, increasing the benefits to individuals of disaster and increasing the federal presence in disaster relief. So he wanted to put more emphasis on mitigation and prevention of disaster. So one of the things he did is he built into new legislation, uh, Water Control Act in 1973, was this um, idea that if you get a federally backed mortgage, you are going to be required to get flood insurance if you're in a designated government mapped flood zone. And so you'll know because what if you're in a flood zone already, you will have to, in order to get that federally backed mortgage, which is what most people do, you'll have to buy flood insurance. And then that would become through uh, private agencies that would sell that through the National Flood Insurance Program. So d does it work? I mean, looking at it since 1972, does it, is it working? Well, that's a great question. Does it work? Um, 
it doesn't work because Congress is very reluctant to make people actually pay what would be the cost of living in a flood zone. As I said, they tried briefly after 2012 with the Bigger's Waters bill, and there was a howl of protest. And it's not just the people who get upset. The real estate brokers who wouldn't be able to sell property that had that kind of high flood insurance, certainly the, the construction industry that um, you know is involved in building homes in flood zones uh, was also an interest group. Certainly uh, banks that might be involved in lending money would be um, concerned about what this might do to the real estate market uh, that you know sell mortgages and then of course there's also the media and you know God bless the media but they also tend to um, you know show um, images that are very emotive and maybe less rational. And so if you see somebody who is, you know, um, seem to be victimized by the federal government, look, this poor person was only paying a few hundred dollars a year for flood insurance, and now it's gonna go up very high, and they certainly can't afford it, and it's unfair, and, you know, it's gonna drive um, these people off of their property. That really does get the public incensed. You know, uh, I think we could all put ourselves in a position where, you know, the things that we hold dear, the our homes, our possessions um, might somehow be, you know, taken away by the government through some uh, government policy. And I think that's that ev evocative sense um, helped um, get Congress to back off and has really been one of the key reasons why Congress has been very reluctant to enforce this. They really do, um, you know, they have to please their constituents. And because flooding is the, the, you know, the um, most expansive, if you will, disaster that we have. It's the most widespread. It's the most common disaster. It's very hard to find, you know, um, a state that doesn't have a flood risk. And certainly then uh, representatives um, want to protect their constituents. And so they're very reluctant to um, do more than um, make, shall we say, minor adjustments to the flood insurance program, because as it stands, it, it's kind of an equilibrium. It works well enough that it doesn't have to be dramatically changed. Um, certainly Congress will just come up with more money to help the flood insurance program, even though it's you know, in the red. Um, those are the kind of factors that play out here. Um, and it's one of the things I bring out in the book. And again, it's, it's a history of 1972. Um, certainly the book, most of the book involves that, but again, the ideas that you're bringing up are clearly the kind of things that I was trying to strive for um, that frankly came from my research. I, I didn't go in with these ideas. Uh, you know, I, I went in with the idea that uh, the federal government was um, simply, you know, uh, lackadaisical and it didn't do enough for the American public. And, um, and then I started my research and it was eye-opening. Um, to, to think about all the different factors that go in. And in the end, it really should be about protecting people, protecting them from harm. We say when the government actually promotes uh, behavior that's risky, we call that a moral hazard. And certainly, you know, I came out of this thinking, yeah, I think we probably need to do more to make people more conscious, more aware of the risk that they're taking. And then maybe local governments will take those necessary steps to start removing people from the flood plane to protect them, or at least requiring, you know, um, structures to be revised so that, you know, they might be up higher um, and, and be able to withstand should the dikes and levees fail, which, again, inevitably, they will. Are you old enough to remember Hurricane Agnes? 
I am indeed. I was nine years old when Hurricane Agnes struck, and and there's a there's a little bit of family lore in the in the book. Um, it's it's buried in a footnote, but uh, my grandmother was in Painted Post and had to be rescued by a rowboat. And uh, apparently the story goes she was upstairs in the attic, uh, e e you know, eating Christmas crackers and drinking old wine with uh, her handyman before they got rescued. And was said, nah, don't pick me up, I'm fine. <laughs> so yeah, it, not only did it, uh, <laughs> I had a personal connection to it. And it was, uh, my great aunt was, uh, had a minor heart attack when she was up on the Corning Glassworks um, as well. So, it, you know, certainly one of the reasons this project probably came to me was in fact because I had a personal connection. And I do find that with a lot of times with historians. People are drawn to write histories that are somehow reflective of their commitments, their ideas, or their own values. Um, and in this case, there was a sort of family story that nudged me to look into it um, to think about writing this book. Now, going back to 1972 again, at, at what point did somebody realize that this was going to be a big deal? Well, it, it really wasn't until after um, Friday, uh, June 23rd, it was really, uh, might even have been, you know, uh, probably by the, by the end of that day, news flashes up and down the Susquehanna were reporting on this devastating flooding in Corning and um, Elmira and Wilkesbury and Harrisburg and all the towns in the northern tier of Pennsylvania on down through the Susquehanna, um, big and small towns. And because this, this flood was so destructive, I mean, what happens where the dikes fail? Um, these cities lose everything. They lose their infrastructure. There's no longer sewage treatment plants. Their water plants are knocked out, so there's no fresh water. You're talking about people who, you know, telephone systems. There's no cell phones in 1972, so you're relying on landlines. Well, they're all knocked out, so you can't communicate with these areas. Their bridges are destroyed, so you can't drive in and out very well. You, even if you could drive in and out, the roads are, are, are going to be covered with slime and muck for a couple of days, water and slime and muck for a couple of days. Um, and so really as people, as reporters went into these areas or were reporting back, they, they, were, they were conscious of how devastating this was and how we had you know, sent the people living in these areas back into you know, um, you know, pre-modern eras. Um, and, and of course we had people Tens of thousands, like 80,000 people in Wilkes-Barre are going to, in the Wyoming Valley, are going to be displaced. And where do they go? They go to, they go to like um, high schools or someplace like that. And and you've got volunteer staff, you know, um, trying to help out. And there's no training. There's no beds. Um, you know, it's just uh, it, it was very clear. Certainly by Saturday, uh, June 24th, that the things were bad. And um, you know, I, I talk about uh, Sri Lanka sent a telegram to the White House offering literally tea and sympathy to the victims and um, yeah so certainly by Saturday people realized we had had a massive um, collapse uh, in our in in these um, small cities along the Susquehanna and there needed to be some uh, swift action uh, of course in the federal government swift action meant that the uh, Agnes uh, Disaster Relief Act um, doesn't get passed till like August 20th so you're thinking June 23rd to August 20th almost two months before they were able to get the disaster relief bill uh, completed and passed but you know, with all deliberate speed, I suppose, right? <laughs> Your book focuses a lot on the city of Wilkesboro. What kind of shape was, was Wilkesboro in prior to the flood? 
You know, that's a great question because I also bring up in the book is the fact that a lot of these minor cities were facing two disasters. The first disaster was deindustrialization. Now, deindustrialization was already occurring in the early 1970s. Our economy had slowed uh, because of different kinds of legislation and the global economy. We were redirecting some of our, uh, our finances away from manufacturing into other parts of the economy, finance, service economy. We were moving out of heavy metal industries. So you saw a lot of places closing. Uh, and Wilkes-Barre had um, a, a history of kind of dealing with economic uh, tragedy, right? The, the collapse of the, of the coal mines, right? The, uh, the, the end of coal in America. Um, and they had tried economic development before. But you know, then you've got this declining economic system. Add to that now um, a flood that's going to actually lead some places to go into bankruptcy, like the Erie Railroad and you know uh, Piper Aircraft and some others uh, are going to face really um, devastating consequences because of this. And then, of course, many of the manufacturing areas in Wilkes-Barre did not recover fully from uh, this disaster, and some of them are going to end up relocating to other areas, um, and of course, moving south, and then of course to the global south where it might be cheaper to get labor. So yeah, the, um, the situation in, in places like these cities, I mean, many of the local leaders thought, okay, well, we're going to use whatever money we can get. And some of the money they would use came from this Disaster Relief Act of the largest in, in U.S. history uh, to that time, like $3.1 billion is going to be expended on, you know, states that had, uh, face this disaster. But also, um, uh, there's going to be some money from urban development that's going to be uh, sent into these areas. So places like Wilkes-Barre and others were thinking, we're going to use this money, we're going to redevelop, we're going to build better than ever, which is a, a phrase that Richard Nixon used. But frankly, I find in any disaster, people always think, oh, we're going to build it, we're going to be better than ever, uh, we're going to come out of this, we're going to come out of this strong. And so what they did is they, they had hoped that this money would help stave off um, deindustrialization as well as to assist in recovering from the flood. Um, I would say that some of the money delayed the inevitable destruction of these economies. Uh, if you go to places like Northeast Pennsylvania, uh, these places um, tend to have older populations, higher unemployment, um, um, and, and other persistent uh, economic issues. Um, so sometimes in the book, you'll, I'll use the phrase the twin tiers. So the southern tier of New York and the northern tier of Pennsylvania are very similar in a lot of ways, geographically, economically. Uh, and it actually, it, it, there's a lot of people who might live in Pennsylvania and would, would work in New York or maybe vice versa in, in those days. So so um, these are cities that were on the, uh, already on the cusp of some sort of slow disaster that was um, certainly uh, sadly exacerbated by the Hurricane Agnes floods. Now going back to the days of the flood, as the waters were rising, at, at, at what point did officials think we, we have to evacuate? And did they, did they do it at the right time? Did they wait too long? And who calls the shots? I, yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. We live in a federalist system, and there's a beauty to it, and there's uh, something awful to it. And the awful thing is, when it comes to natural disaster policy and politics, really, it's the Constitution of the United States says health and safety belong at the local level. So presumably, the local governments are calling the shots. And in those days, we didn't have emergency management like we have today. We had civil defense. 
and our civil defense organizations were uh, not well funded by the federal government. It was state and local governments that had to fund them. You might have county civil defense officers like Frank Townend in Wilkes-Barre and Luzerne County um, who were um, really the ones calling the shots. And frankly, they were built really to withstand an invasion or a nuclear attack by Russia, not to deal with natural disasters. So um, uh, Townend, for example, uh, was to quote another author, um, either someone you loved or hated, and uh, was a controversial figure, but uh, really was the one that decided not to evacuate, uh, delayed evacuation, and thought that, you know what? These dice are gonna hold. I just know it in my gut. And so he ordered sandbagging. And so he, he got people up and on Friday, and they were sandbagging. And right up until 11 o'clock AM, um, they were trying to stop the flood. But the sandbags gave way. And then you had, uh, you know, if you see images, of the people are just like running away from the river because they had waited so long. And there were a couple of tragedies because of that. Um, I would certainly say that um, there were, in most cases, many of your local officials were worried about crying wolf. They were worried about calling for evacuations if there wasn't going to be a flood. They worried about, you know, the political fallout from this. And so they resisted that. The one exception that I note in the book is this uh, man named Joe Sartori Jr., who was the city manager of Elmira, New York, not too far away from the Pennsylvania border. And he called for evacuations um, before the flood struck. So um, there was no loss of life in Elmira. Um, and sadly, the state of Pennsylvania, we saw 48 people die. And um, just across the border in, in Corning, New York, there were uh, 18 people died alone because uh, they didn't call for evacuations. And then the dikes broke and uh, people were caught off guard. And it was uh, particularly up in New York State, it was early, early in the morning. It was uh, between like 4 and 6 a.m. when the dikes were just gushing water out. So people were still asleep. They had to be woken up and um, they were very discombobulated. And so really it was local officials uh, calling the shots. We're more fortunate now because we do have an emergency management system that's much better. The National Weather Service is much better about giving warnings than they were in those days. And in, back in 1972, you had to join uh, a national uh, warning system, the NAWAS system, that, and you had to pay a subscription fee. So a lot of local governments didn't. They relied on their local um, television and radio stations to purchase the service and then give them warnings. Um, I will say the National Weather Service did issue many warnings and bulletins. And uh, I know from interviewing people in Harrisburg at the um, hydrology center there, they actually called Frank Townen and pleaded with him to evacuate around 10 a.m. There was a guy named Odie White who made the call personally to try to reach out and, and get uh, the local officials to take seriously how dangerous this flood could be. And, uh, 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 but uh, there was a resistance to that, and that resistance, I think, led to tragedy. When, when the decision is finally made, okay, evacuate, how, what happens then? I mean, how does the word go out and, and can you describe the scene? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 um, it's like, you know, really 
complete chaos, frankly. Um, you've got, I mean, there, there was a delay in getting the National Guard units um, like down to uh, Wilkes-Barre because there was, um, um, the unions were uh, up in arms over non-union labor going on at the King of Prussia Mall, which was being built up in Norristown. And so there, there was a lack of, of some of these National Guard units, so they didn't have them uh, exactly in place um, until late on Friday. Um, so what you do is you, you, you send out, you sound the alarms. Most of these cities had some sort of audio alarm. Uh, the sirens would go off. They went off seven times in um, or the Wilkes-Barre area to get people to, to flee the, uh, from the flood. Um, in uh, places like in, in Corning, they, they use siren. They sent their uh, police cars out with sirens and then, you know, bullhorns and then try to get people to uh, evacuate. Uh, although, again, by the time many of these um, people were dispatched, the, um, the flood was already coming. Mm. Um, and you think about this flood. I mean, yeah, water's pouring out. Water's pouring out of these dikes or levees at like 35 miles an hour. I mean, that'll knock a human being off uh, their feet, and you can drown in just a few feet of water. I mean, we, we saw tragedies where just a few feet, but fast running water, and people were unable to sustain if they didn't know how to swim, or if they panicked, um, that could certainly lead to great tragedy. Um, and, uh, and again, sadly, I have stories in the book uh, of that um, occurring. So yeah, it was, um, it depended on where you were located. It was not systematic. It was fairly chaotic. And um, the fortunate people were those people who took matters into their own hands before the evacuations and actually left on their own and said, you know, I don't have a good feeling about this. I, I, I'm nervous about this. Uh, I, I think I'm going to leave. Um, maybe some of the old timers who remembered the 36 and floods in the 1940s, but a lot of the newer people to the areas had no idea that these floods had really even occurred. So again, they felt quite safe and sound um, behind their dikes and levees. Well, you said earlier that when this kind of thing happens, there's tens of, there were tens of thousands of people who had to go someplace and like school gyms or something. Well, where did they go and who figured all that out? There, the civil defense did have some um, evacuation areas because, uh, again, planning for a nuclear attack or you know some other uh, invasion, they had some of these uh, already in mind. There were some plans um, in 1971. There had been some sort of uh, attempt to think about, well, you know, what if X, Y, and Z happens in Luzerne County? So there were designated sites to go. These were uh, places, you know, you might remember growing up, you see the signs for things like fallout shelters and things like that. Um, so designated uh, spaces. And so people were told, you know, as they were, you know, leaving, you know, go to, you know, the GAR high school or go to, right, this gym or this church is accepting people, please go there. But of course, once they got there, then again, it's, it's chaos. There's no beds waiting for them necessarily. There's certainly no food, no water, all of that. Somebody's got to figure this out. And this is really, once again, where the local officials were the ones who had to strategize this. I mean, when they realized what was happening, I have to say, they all created their own 
command posts, if you will, and, and began to try to deal with the disaster as best as they could. Um, and there were limits. Certainly, um, in Wilkes-Barre, um, uh, Bernie Gallagher was the new city manager. He'd been on the job one week. Uh, he really had no experience in this. He'd been the city engineer. Uh, and so he really had to rely on philanthropic uh, organizations, churches and other groups. The American Red Cross is going to come in and help out. The Salvation Army, uh, the Mennonite uh, uh, service, uh, certainly they, they were all there almost immediately. Once they realized something was going on, they uh, came out to assist uh, in, in bringing you know, food, bringing blankets, uh, private companies sent in water um, and foodstuffs uh, to, uh, to assist I individuals. I mean, as, as we're thinking about, again, the, the, the role that government plays, we, we can't forget that in America, we, we often rely on private organizations to assist us through great tragedies. And in this case, certainly they were there to help. Now, we, we've talked about Wilkes-Barre a bit, but, uh, but other towns were affected by it. Uh, Harrisburg was flooded. You mentioned in the book Pittsburgh was flooded. It was pretty far off the, the line you'd expect. And, and then there were small towns along the way, too. And maybe Wilkes-Barre would have a, somebody in, in a city that size who's in charge of emergency things. But what, what happens in small towns along the way who are hit? There, I, I, I talk a little bit about the small towns and some of their civil defense representatives. Again, in many cases, people who did civil defense in these towns were, you know, uh, volunteers. Um, they didn't get paid for it. Uh, they did this as sort of a, you know, part of their um, duty to the government. Sometimes it was an honorific. There was a bartender in uh, uh, in Elmira who, uh, where the local, it was a local watering hole for the politicians. So he was sort of the civil defense director, a guy named Arthur Sykes. Um, and, and they were completely uh, unprepared for this. Um, and in that case, as the civil defense collapsed, and I talk about some of this, I mean, there were fights between the, the county sheriffs and the civil defense director. I mean, fist fights in some places. Um, you know, in, in, in Athens, PA, there was, you know, the mayor was like, oh, we don't have a civil defense director. They resigned. And the, and the mayor's like, oh, I, I didn't even know they were working the job. So a lot of miscommunication. In those cases, it was the mayor. Uh, the city councils and others that uh, tried to rally together um, individuals, you know, uh, police, sheriffs, and others to try to help deal with this. And then, of course, you know, as soon as they could get on a radio, a uh, ham set, or some other uh, device that was not necessarily going to be knocked out because of the flood, they began calling people asking for assistance from other towns or from larger entities like counties. And so some of that would come in uh, as well. But these people were pretty much left on their own, particularly in the small towns. Uh, in Harrisburg, of course, it was a little different. Um, Harrisburg, you know, the state capital, uh, they had flooding um, all along uh, the front there. Uh, you can still see the high water mark um, there. But that knocked out the, the River Forecast Center, uh, which was located, ironically, along the river. Um, it certainly dislocated, to a certain extent, the government. Uh, Milton Schaap was governor in 1972. The governor's mansion was flooded. He had to be evacuated by rowboat. Uh, they tried to save as much as they could of the uh, valuable items, paintings and such, from the governor's mansion. Um, but there again, you had a, a better civil defense. And of course, you also had um, you know, the, the state police authorities and others that could be called in. Um, 
In most cases, though, um, you know, you had people going to neighbors' houses. You had people going to, okay, this person's high and dry. I'm going to take in some families overnight, and then we'll sort it out in the morning, and we'll figure out what to do. Um, and it was pretty bad because these people were homeless, as I said, throughout most of the summer. Um, you, you know, he had 12,000 people apply for trailers in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, 9,000 families were approved to get some sort of trailer because their home was not someplace you could live in. Um, but by, you know, the end of July, there were only 900 trailers delivered. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this was, this was going to be a difficult time. And I got to say, the individuals, they had to deal with it on their own. Now, after, after the, the water had receded, there was a lot of finger pointing going on. And one of the, mm -hmm. the, the focuses of the finger pointing you talk about in your book is the National Weather Service. Were they at all remiss in this? <laughs> Um, it depends on remiss. And um, I think, again, it was, it's kind of like those dikes and levees. I mean, the dikes and levees were there. They did a certain job. They were built for a so-called 100-year flood, and they failed. Um, but, you know, they, they did their job up until the water exceeded what they were rated for. The National Weather Service certainly never felt apologetic for what happened. Uh, in fact, they awarded several of the National Weather Service people special medals for what they did. But they did not see it as their job necessarily after issuing bulletins to be responsible for uh, what people did with those warnings. So um, certainly local officials felt that they had been let down that as, you know, as they were getting these bulletins, there's supposed to be certain kind of numbers you could call or people you could talk to. But um, in many cases, all they got uh, on the end of the local officials were busy signals, which of course meant that they couldn't get at the information that they needed. And so they were um, attempting to deal with this crisis often in, you know, in the dark, so to speak. Certainly after the flood, they were in the dark. But before the flood, they really, uh, I, I, feel, I feel that the National Weather Service could have done a better job. And certainly because of this, Congress did send more money to the National Weather Service and increased their kind of warning system. Um, today, I think the National Weather Service does a much better job than it did in 1972. I will say, for the record, they did what they were supposed to do in 1972. But of course, there's the letter of the law and there's the spirit of the law. Um, and in only a few instances, and I mentioned O.D. White, the, the people at the River Forecast Center who was so concerned about what would happen in Wilkes-Barre that they called themselves, that, um, that yeah, they, they probably did not fulfill what either the federal government, the state government, or the local government expected them to do. Um, but I will tell you this too. Uh, on the other hand, when local officials did sort of get information from the National Weather Service, 1972, they didn't bother telling anyone else. So, you know, I have examples in the book of, well, yeah, no, I knew a flood was coming in Town X. Did you, did you tell anyone else? No. I mean, they were, they were working in virtual isolation of each other. And then, you know, the irony, of course, is after the flood, rather than New York and Pennsylvania working together, they were often at odds trying to get some of the benefits, and that often happens, too. You know, disasters are not bounded by a state in most cases. They're, um, they're geographically uh, widespread. But um, we often have people competing with each other. And that certainly happened when 
uh, people received information on the warnings but didn't share with others or, or ask others for information uh, if you were in fact so to speak in, in the dark and didn't know what was going to happen. You, you mentioned a while ago that, uh, that 1972 was an election year. How did that play into all this? It was uh, Richard Nixon versus George McGovern? Yeah. Yeah, um, 1972 was important because I, I, I have to be honest, uh, I don't think that Nixon would have been as generous with the disaster relief. And that, that disaster relief really made a difference for many people. Uh, look, here's the thing. It's 1972. Your house gets flooded. You don't have flood insurance. No one really had flood insurance in, in 72. I think, you know, one person in, in Corning had flood insurance, Corning, New York. But most people didn't have it. It wasn't required. So they didn't get it. So your house is wiped out. You might have paid off your mortgage already. You might be paying off your mortgage. Well, the government's going to lend you money to rebuild your home, but you've got to pay that back at 1% interest, which was lower than the rate. Nixon included a $5,000 forgiveness, though, uh, for people who borrowed money. And I think that made a real difference for a lot of Americans in those days. But I doubt very much he would have been that generous had he not been looking at his reelection in 1972. Um, some of uh, the viewers may know this about Richard Nixon. Uh, of course, he barely lost the 1960 election in terms of popular vote to John F. Kennedy. Um, when people went to bed in 1960, they didn't know who actually had won. There was a, about a 300,000 vote difference between the two in 60. Then in 1968, Richard Nixon barely wins the election of 1968, probably helped out by the third party candidate, George Wallace, who took votes, electoral votes even, away from uh, the Hubert Humphrey, who ran in 1968. So in 1972, Richard Nixon has a lot to prove. And he wants to win, and he wants to win big, and he wants to win in states like Pennsylvania and New York um, that he didn't necessarily win in 1968. So he is going to go all out. At one point, one of his aides says, yes, we're going to out McGovern McGovern in terms of being generous with this disaster relief package. And there was a memo from his campaign that said disasters can have positive political impacts if they're handled right. And I will say this, Richard Nixon thought of most disasters first in terms of politics, then in terms of persons. And so, yeah, the 72 uh, election is a thread that runs throughout the book. And it wasn't just Nixon. I, I have to say uh, Governor Schapp of Pennsylvania was also uh, interested in the 72 election. He had ambitions of being the first Jewish vice president of the United States and um, had thought that maybe if he could play kingmaker at the Democratic National Convention in 1972, uh, because going into the convention, um, there was no clear victor from Govern versus Humphrey, who was also running again. And so he was hoping that he could throw some of the Pennsylvania delegates one way or another and then receive as a reward. That obviously, those ambitions faded when he realized he had a flood to deal with. Um, but certainly that was a thread throughout. Congress may have delayed some of the legislation, giving these generous benefits to people until August in part because Congress was run by the Democrats and they didn't want to hand something necessarily, a victory, if you will, to Richard Nixon. Um, so I think a politics play a really important part in how disasters are handled from Washington um, 
and perhaps even down to the state level, how people respond in terms of their elected office and what kind of pressure people can put on them to respond to the disaster. And so you'll see that that thread runs through. And frankly, political scientists um, have found that uh, there is kind of a, a way that presidents have used natural disaster benefits uh, and natural disaster declarations clearly does tend to give them an electoral advantage. Uh, and they're well aware of that. Um, and so we cover some of that in the book, too. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a great story, you know, but I do have to have all those footnotes in there. So if you're interested in that kind of scholarly stuff, it's all, it's all in the book. You'll find it there. You write a scene where George McGovern comes and visits the, the flooded area in Pennsylvania, and then the Nixon people think, oh, well, we've got to get Nixon there, too. How important does that matter that there are the photographs of the, the candidate walking through the, the, the disaster area? You know, I, I have a quote in there uh, from somebody who wrote a letter to uh, uh, Congressman McDade. Now, Joe McDade was a congressman. Um, I talk about in the book this guy named Daniel J. Flood, who one of the most famous Pennsylvania congressmen in history. So um, if you're from you know, the Wilkes-Barre era, area, you'll, you'll know this, this, this incredibly dramatic figure. But, he, but there was a Republican Joe McDade up in um, this north, northeastern Pennsylvania there. And uh, a Democrat writes him after the Nixon visit and says, you know, I've been a Democrat all my life, but Mr. Nixon, you know, showed that he cared and he passed this generous disaster relief. So I'm going to vote for Nixon this year. I think, I think people expect that the president of the United States should come to the disaster area. You know, it's, it's in a strange way, um, it's almost phantological, which is a fancy word that means, you know, like almost mystical, that if the president shows up and, and, and puts his hands out and he will heal the nation, healer in chief maybe. That begins with Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s, but if a president doesn't show up in a disaster area, people get very upset. So I think Nixon's showing up um, in August of uh, 1972 is really important for winning over and converting the people of that area. But also the publicity is going to help him, uh, I think, win Pennsylvania in the fall of 1972. And he did. He won in 1972. Richard Nixon won every state except, of course, for the District of Columbia and Massachusetts. He even won McGovern's home state of South Dakota and had over 60 percent of the popular vote. Well, talk a little bit more about the congressman you mentioned, the ironically named Dan Flood. Um, he was on the Appropriations Committee at the time. What kind of strings was he able to pull? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so you got to understand, it's 1972. So this is pre-Watergate, and, and Watergate changes everything, and uh, you, you ditch the seniority system. But he'd been in Congress on, you know, on and off from the 40s, uh, pretty much sust uh, you know, sustained from like 1952 on. So he had um, a great deal of power. Senior, he was uh, what we call one of the cardinals of the Appropriations Co Committee. He was the sub-chairman of uh, two important committees. One was defense, 
So when the flood hits, he calls up Mel Laird, who's Secretary of Defense, and says, I need choppers. And Mel Laird's going to lend him his own chopper. And, and Dan Flood is going to fly out of Washington, where, by the way, he had an apartment that was just steps from the Capitol, which now today would be an office building. But back then, he was so powerful, they let him have an apartment there. So he takes this helicopter from Washington, lands in uh, an Avoca, which is out, outside of the flood zone. And he takes command there, and he's going to run the show. But, but Dan Flood was in, you know, because of this, uh, he wants to brag, two-thirds of federal appropriations go through my subcommittees. I'm a very important man, and he was. People respected him. People feared him. People sneered at him. He, he liked to wear white suits, and he had a snidely whiplash mustache, and I guess I'm dating myself. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, something, something out of Salvador Dali, maybe, if, if you're familiar with that. But there's pictures of him in the book. And, and you know, he was this character that, um, you know, was a bit bombastic and, you know, this is one flood against another, he once declared. And of course, he knew he was going to win. So his ability to get things done, my gosh, this is a guy who, in order to save the um, to save the coal industry required by law that uh, American bases in Germany use this anthrax coal from Pennsylvania to heat them at a cost of millions of taxpayer dollars just to keep these mines going a little bit longer. And, and, and a guy who's, you know, if you're in the Wyoming Valley, you'll find tons of different things named for him uh, at one time. Um, so incredibly powerful, had IOUs all over the place that he called in in order to get things done. He was really able to pull some strings and make sure that um, uh, federal officials, at least, uh, were uh, uh, somewhat attentive to the needs of Wilkes-Barre. But the problem, obviously, is that you can give something all the attention you want, but there's also laws and there's also rivalries between bureaucracies. So he, you know, he worked up to the limit of his power, but he was not, you know, shall we say, omnipotent. But uh, yeah, if, if um, there's a guy, and there's a great book about him by William Cachatis, uh who's out of the Wyoming Valley, and uh, so great, great character you should all know about in Pennsylvania. One other character in your book uh, is uh, who plays a prominent role is George Romney. Who was he, and why does he play a prominent role? George Romney becomes the scapegoat for Richard Nixon and all that went bad in this uh, disaster, all of the bureaucratic snafus, which, of course, are going to occur. I'm sorry. You, you, you really can't expect the federal government to work completely, absolutely smoothly when you've got dozens of different agencies and you're hiring people on the spot to process federal forms. And, of course, it's the federal government. The forms themselves are not exactly written in simple, clear English. They require, you know, bureaucratic ease translation. So um, Romney is in charge of the housing and urban development. And he'd been the governor of Michigan. And he was famous because he had turned American Motors around. He'd turned a failing automobile, uh, automobile um, uh, company around. And he, he became um, a, a somewhat liberalish governor for those times, uh, Republican, of Michigan. And he had aspirations to run for the White House. Now, he was a Mormon, and uh, prior to John F. Kennedy's election, 
probably would not have thought that he could reach the highest office in the land. But he really, you know, after uh, Kennedy had bashed the, um, um, shall we say, the, the, the Catholic barrier, um, really it, it felt in the 1960s that no matter what your religious background, you no longer needed to be, uh, you know, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, uh, to, to run for higher office. So he's going to run in 68, and he fumbles when he's asked about a trip to Vietnam. And he, and he makes some claim that the military tried to brainwash him um, to, to, to buy into the Vietnam War. That's not something that's popular uh, to say to Republicans in particular in 68. So he doesn't get far in the, in the primaries in 68. So it, he ends up um, supporting Richard Nixon in 1968 and becomes head of housing and urban development. And he's, um, housing and development was created under Lyndon Johnson. Nixon despises it. He, he doesn't want cab more cabinet positions. And, and he certainly, um, it's considered to be, you know, one of these outer cabinet positions. It, it's uh, like Department of Transportation, uh, uh, you know, Department of Education. These tend to be agencies that are created for certain clientele. And Department of Agriculture and Farmers and Department of Education, Teachers and Schools, um, as opposed to what they call the inner cabinet, which is defense, right, national security issues, treasury. Um, so Nixon did not want much to do with his cabinet, certainly didn't want anything to do with George Romney. You know, he kept him on, got votes, you know, by, by having him on, brought in some more moderate Republican voters. And so Romney is, is now going to be tasked with housing. As I said, there were you know, 80,000 people displaced in uh, Wilkes-Barre alone, but up and down the eastern seaboard, lots of people had been flooded out. So his, his response was, of course, he was in charge of dealing with this. Um, but I mentioned earlier in the, in the program that you know, they had promised 9,000 trailers to people in the Wyoming Valley and had delivered only 900 by the end of July. And so people were very upset. Um, they were very angry at, uh, at what the federal government was doing. They were angry at Nixon. So Nixon decides to send Romney in to Wilkes-Barre to get a fact-finding mission. So he sends him in. And um, people are not happy to see him. He, you know, he comes in in his full suit and his shiny shoes, and he's all you know, neat and clean. These are people who are eating cold sandwiches every day because they have no uh, electricity or gas in their broken-down homes. These are people who, right, you know, are, are trying to you know put some sort of water together so they can you know shower uh, every now and then. These are people who are living. Um, a pretty miserable uh, existence. And this guy comes in, and um, what people really wanted the federal government to do in 1972 was to pay the entire cost of rebuilding their homes and businesses. They wanted to be, you know, they wanted to be indemnified against uh, this disaster. And there were people like Milton Schapp who strongly supported this. There were, you know, people, I have to say, there were. Um, some people even in the, in the Nixon administration who toyed with the idea. Uh, it just wasn't popular enough. It, it probably wouldn't have gotten through Congress, even though Congress was run by the, by the Democrats, because it would have set a precedent then 
for uh, future disasters. But but what they really wanted, and and Romney wanted to hear nothing of that. He said, you know what, uh, we, the government's doing more. We've done more here than any other disaster in the past. We've been faster than any other time in American history. And so we really are here to help you. And um, don't don't talk about this this question of being, you know, uh, free pass. You know, we're doing everything we can. We're going to give you loans, grants, uh, whatever. And um, that's not what the the people wanted to hear. There's a I, group of. Um, I, I hate to do this. But I'd love to keep talking, but unfortunately, we are out of time. We have been speaking with <laughs> Timothy Neeland. He is the author of this book, Playing Politics with Natural Disaster: Hurricane Agnes, the 1972 Election, and the Origins of FEMA. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.